You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie in America, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. That's right, we're the pod featuring two women from different countries who met online, got to really know each other while doing this podcast, and now we're real-life best friends who talk once a week to share stories of murder, mystery, and macabre happenings in history with all of you. This week, we have a great topic for the spookiest month of the year. We're going back to San Diego, and we will be discussing the historic, haunted El Campo Santo Cemetery. It's going to be great. Do you know what's not great, though? The unceasing, unmitigated, migraine-inducing, borderline criminal annoyance of living in a construction zone for at least four years. I'd be more precise, but I was just diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 46, and as it turns out, I have real problems with the passage of time. Who knew? Literally, literally everyone, but my late ass knew, apparently. But it's been years, years. Usually, they start at 7 in the morning and they end at 3 in the afternoon. I don't know if they're pushing to get more work done before the first big freeze. Whatever the reason, I am having to record this one on my own because of time differences. And then I'm going to send it to Johanna, who will get up at the crack of dawn to edit it. And at this point is rolling her eyes at me, so let's get on with it. Okay, so... People who are listening to this episode on repeat, just so that my voice puts you to sleep during your flight, you know, this is the time to take a deep breath, get as snuggy as you can, take another deep breath, and now that you're relaxed, let me tell you all about the terrible history of El Campo Santo, and a little bit about the founding of Old Town, and the ghosts still haunting that area so that when we go back, Johanna, we know the history. So come on. Come on, take a graveyard walk with me. Ooh, it's going to be good. Also, just a quick warning that I'm going to be covering the deaths of people in a cemetery, and so we're going to be discussing all kinds of death, execution by hanging, murder, shootings, death of children and infants, This all happened a long time ago. We're not going to get into too many specifics. And it's not always violent, but those things don't always matter. So, you've been warned. All right. So, the first people to call modern-day San Diego home were members of the Kumeyaay Indian Nation. And my very sincere apologies if I get any of the pronunciation just egregiously wrong. I really did look things up. In 1542, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo claimed the area for Spain. In the May-June 1995 edition of Audubon, Jessica Maxwell writes, When the Spanish first saw the meadows of the mountain valley east of what we now call San Diego, they pronounced them, quote, excellent pasture, end quote. They assumed them to be natural, and being European herdsmen, considered them prime grazing land. The early invaders were, in fact, gazing upon the ancient grain fields of the indigenous Kumeyaay Indians. 
some of the earliest and best environmental managers in North America, end quote. So, yeah, none of what the Spanish colonizers saw when they initially arrived was natural, but about 10,000 years of very careful and meticulous land management. All right. So this next bit is mostly from Wikipedia, actually, because you know what? Sometimes Wikipedia is fine. That could be their new slogan, right? Wikipedia, because sometimes Wikipedia is fine. Also, this Wikipedia summary is keeping me on track so I don't diverge in a crowded wood. All right, Wikipedia. Quick, quick run through history. Quote, The Presidio and Mission San Diego de Alcala founded in 1769, formed the first European settlement in what is now California. In 1821, San Diego became part of the newly declared Mexican Empire, which reformed as the first Mexican Republic two years later. California was conquered by the U.S. in 1848, following the Mexican-American War and was admitted to the Union as a state in 1850. San Diego's main economic engines are military and defense-related activities, tourism, international trade, research, and manufacturing. The primary border crossing between San Diego and Tijuana, the San Isidro point of entry, is the biggest international land border crossing in the world outside of Asia. That's a mouthful, isn't it, Wikipedia? Uh, I guess it's the fourth busiest overall. And that doesn't really surprise me. We were only in, like, Southern California for five days. And by Southern California, I mean sort of San Diego South. I did not realize when we planned everything how close and easy Tijuana is. So now I wish I had planned a visit because everyone, when we were in Imperial Beach, asked if we had gone. So we need to go back. And with my luck, I'll forget there's an Indica vape in my bag for nausea. And that's how I get caught trying to smuggle weed into Mexico. All right, moving on. Today you can visit Old Town, which we did on Halloween. Again, not planned. And we loved it. This is from oldtownsandiego.com. Quote, In 1968, the State of California Department of Parks and Recreation established Old Town State Historic Park to preserve the rich heritage that characterized San Diego during the 1821 to 1872 period. The park includes a main plaza, exhibits, museums, and living history demonstrations. Historic buildings include La Casa de Estudio, La Casa de Bandini, La Casa de Altamirno Pedrodena, and the Mason Street School, San Diego's first one-room schoolhouse. Just up the hill from Old Town San Diego Historic Park, you'll find Heritage Park, where several of San Diego's most notable Victorian homes have been relocated and authentically restored to their original splendor. Just a short walk down San Diego Avenue is the Whaley House, an officially designated haunted house, the Little Adobe Chapel on Conda Street, the first church in Old Town San Diego, and El Campo Santo on San Diego Avenue an 1850 Catholic cemetery, end quote. So, quite a bit to unpack there. We did not see everything. The park itself was very cool. The plaza was, it's beautiful. And at first, I had that kind of weird feeling like, is this a, is this a state park or like a theme park? It kind of reminded me a little bit of Old Town Sacramento, but I really enjoyed it. 
we need to go back because we didn't tour any of the old homes or anything. But we did go to the cemetery, so let's talk about it. It was initially much, much larger than what you see today. The first burial took place in 1849, and in less than 50 years, there would be 477 bodies laid to rest on this land, which El Campo Santo translates to the Holy Field. So once you pass through the modest but lovely gate, you're in a space that's small, with little circles of stones or picket fence or maybe rocks in the shape of a cross. Nothing nothing feels terribly permanent, and there's a reason for that. The very first grave, we don't have a lot of info, but what we do have is one of the many signs, I guess would be the right word. It's sort of a laminated information sign about the person who they know was buried somewhere near there at some time. So the first one is, and this is done by the Historical Society. And so the first one is, quote, in memory of Juan Adams, died November 1849, rest in peace, first burial in El Campo Santo. And then Johanna, we're not going to talk about every single grave in the cemetery because that's difficult and complicated and you need to go and see for yourself some of them, obviously. But I couldn't not mention this one. This one just says, in memory of the unknown German who died at the hospital December 11th, 1871, RIP. And then underneath it says, Very little is known about this man. What we do know is that he was born in Germany and was single. How he came to San Diego and died is a mystery. Many strangers and paupers were buried here at El Campo Santo. All right, let's talk about Anita Gillis. So this quote is from California's Oldest Town by Lillian Whaley. She is describing the funeral of Anita Gillis. Uh, Anita was a local nine-year-old girl who had died of scarlet fever. And here she's describing one of the early burials at the cemetery. Quote, I remember the funeral procession of little Anita Gillis as it wound across the plaza on its way to the old church. The child lay in a tiny white coffin which rested on a small white table. The cover was off, and the coffin and table were filled with flowers. Six little girls, dressed in white, with wreaths on their heads, carried the table. The priest and two boys, carrying crosses, walked ahead, the mourners behind. Musicians, playing the violin and accordion, and boys firing off firecrackers, brought up the rear of the procession. She was carried to the church. The coffin was placed under a small white catafalque, draped in Spanish lace and surrounded by candles. A simple, solemn mass was said. She was carried to the old cemetery nearby and buried, and a simple white wooden cross bearing her name, etc., was erected at the head of her grave. End quote. That's incredibly sad, and of course at that time scarlet fever had about a 20% mortality rate. Fun fact, well, not a fun fact, but a, a fact, is around the same time in 1849, the famous composer Johann Strauss died in Vienna from scarlet fever. So let's talk a little bit more about scarlet fever. 
All of this information comes from the American Society of Microbiology. Their website is asm.org, and it's from an article written by infectious disease specialist Dr. Andrea Prinzi. And she writes, quote, The first notable description of what might have been scarlet fever was documented by the Sicilian physician Giovanni Filippo Ingrassia in 1553. Ingrassia, who was well known for his anatomical studies and contributions to public health, called the disease Rosalia and described the patient as having, quote, numerous spots, large and small, fiery and red, of universal distribution so that the whole body appeared to be on fire, end quote. Yeah. So it goes from like, ooh, that's a small red spot to something bite you, and then before you know it, it looks like you have a terrible sunburn or sun poisoning. For me, it was summertime, which I guess is unusual unless you have a problematic immune system, <laughs> which I do. And I was excited to ride my bike and, you know, all the stuff when school's out for the summer, right? I wanted to play my bike. I wanted to see my friends. And so I just kind of powered through a sore throat, which as it turns out was a mistake. It's a bad idea. Don't power through if you really feel sick. I was so sick. I was in quarantine all summer in my bedroom with the shades down. And these were the olden times. So I could hear my friends show up on their bikes asking if it was okay for me to come out and play yet. And my mom bring me a popsicle and a new book to me in my bed. You know, it was a bummer. The article continues, quote, German physicians described an outbreak of a similar disease to Rosalia in 1564, and they termed it Scarlatina anginosa, noting that it was particularly fatal to infants and that patients presented with a sore throat, violent fever, vomiting, and swelling of the parotid glands in addition to a rash, end quote. I had everything but the vomiting. But seriously, everyone's dying all over the place, and it's not until the 1920s that they understood the significance of the sore throat and realized that scarlet fever is caused by Streptococcus A. Again, from the article, quote, from the 1920s until antibiotics were discovered in the 1940s, clinicians and public health officials could use the signs and symptoms of scarlet fever to isolate patients and prevent the spread of the deadly disease. This was achieved by placing quarantine signs in the windows of homes of infected patients. End quote. The article does go on to remind people that scarlet fever is very much still around and still fatal. Definitely more treatable these days with antibiotics, nowhere near the 20% mortality rate before we had them. But still, numbers have been on the rise in Europe and in the USA. It was a miserable month in bed, in the dark. And then it was weird because for years, I was almost allergic to the sun and would get like sun poisoning if I wasn't really well slathered in sunscreen and covered up. I even burned all the pigment out of my skin. You can see it in like my college graduation pictures. You can st still see clear as day where there was just like a, a piece of <laughs> part of my chest with just no pigment at all. It's bizarre. <sighs> Things I thought were normal until the diagnoses begin. All right, let's move on because the next signage is savage. All right, so this is the signage, and I'm saying signage very specifically. Just keep in mind, please. I am talking about a P 
piece of paper generated by the historical society and laminated and placed, you know, on a post outside where the small cross is or where the ring of circles with nothing else to see is. You know what I mean? Okay. This one is Thomas Writington. Quote, with the possible exception of Henry D. Fitch, Thomas Writington was the first American settler in San Diego. He came with Abel Stearns on the Ayacucho in 1833 and settled while Stearns went up the coast. Whitington was supercargo, that is, the officer in charge of cargo and commercial interests of the voyage aboard his vessel. He was from Fall River, Massachusetts, a shoemaker by trade, and had a good education. He applied for Mexican naturalization in 1835 and got provisional papers in 1838. He served as a volunteer in the Mexican War. He held several minor offices under both Mexican and American governments. He married Juana Machado de Alipas, widow of Damasio Alipas and daughter of José Manuel Machado. He owned a grog shop and a general store in San Diego and even served as suplente jez de paz, which is substitute justice of the peace. Circumstances surrounding his death are sketchy at best, but according to the journal of visitor Richard Dana, quote, he fell from his horse and was found nearly eaten up by coyotes, end quote. Allegedly, this occurred somewhere near the El Cajon Rancho. His widow Juana died in 1901 and is buried in Cavalry Cemetery, now known as Pioneer Park in Mission Hills, end quote. So, yikes. But I think for what it's worth, I'd rather be eaten by wild animals and go back into the food chain than... Just a lot of other options, you know what I mean? So honestly, that doesn't bother me. I just hope he was killed on impact when his head hit a rock and not so many other things, actually. Okay, next we have, oh, this one's interesting. Okay, Bill Marshall and Juan Verdugo hanged December 13th 1851. Bill Marshall was an American man married to the daughter of a local Indian chieftain. He was a renegade sailor from Providence, Rhode Island, who had deserted from a whaling ship at San Diego in 1844. A whaling ship, Johanna. He had taken up habitation with the Indians. Ah, <gasps> scandal. He took an active part in the Gata Indian Uprising in 1851. Bill Marshall and the Indians, Juan Verdugo, were caught and brought back to San Diego to be promptly tried by court-martial. Marshall was found guilty and thus sentenced to hang, as was Juan Verdugo. The Indian acknowledged his guilt, but Marshall insisted he was innocent. At two o'clock in the afternoon, a scaffold was erected near the old Catholic cemetery. The men placed in a wagon, the ropes adjusted about their necks, and the wagon moved on, leaving them to strangle to death. End quote. <sighs> yeah. Okay, so let's lighten things up a little bit. I mean, not too much. It's still awful. Don't get me wrong. But this marker left me with some questions. Okay, so this isn't one of the laminated ones with like facts from the Historic Society. This one looks 
older, for sure. It's more permanent. It's on wood. It's like a wooden, it's like a little wooden plaque. And it says, at first I thought it said sacked, sacked to the memory, but it it doesn't. It says sacred, which I think we can all agree makes so much more sense. So it says sacred to the memory of John Stiles, who came to his death from a bullet from a revolver. And here's where things take a little bit of a turn for me. It continues. It was one of the old-fashioned kind and brass-mounted, and such is the kingdom of heaven. That's it. So, let's read it one more time, top to bottom, as the writer intended. Sacred to the memory of John Stiles, who came to his death from a bullet from a revolver. It was one of the old-fashioned kind and brass-mounted, and such is the kingdom of heaven. Really? Like, was there a side-making deadline and someone in the historic society was like, oh no, John Stiles, wait, what happened to him? And then someone else in the historic society was like, oh, he came to his death from a bullet. Bullet. And he's like, yeah, it was a bullet. And he's like, from a revolver. Right, from a revolver. It was one of the old-fashioned kinds. And brass-mounted. I've never seen such a literal... Wait until you all see it. I'm going to share it on all the things. And then underneath that, like as an afterthought, it's just this ampersand, and then such is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to make that my new signature for email. Just, and such is the kingdom of heaven. Apropos of nothing. Ugh, I have questions. Also, what the fuck happened to John Stiles? Well, you've already told us that he came to his death from a bullet from a revolver and that it was one of the old-fashioned kinds, but like, okay. All right. Now we need to move to another of the earliest and perhaps the most violent deaths that we know happened on the grounds of the cemetery, because the next death is one that I had never heard of, and now I'm really glad I know more. I'm talking about the death of Antonio Guerra, G-A-R-R-A. And the following information, we found a lot of good articles on. I found so many things. We'll list them all in our sources. But the best, the, the, one, that, the one that made it the easiest for me to understand was this one. So this is the one I'm going to share with you. This is from courthousenews.com. There's an article called, uh, it's entitled, quote, Antonio Garade celebrates history of Native American resistance. The annual event celebrates the little-known history of 19th century Native American resistance leader Antonio Gara, the spirit of resistance of Native American people and their culture in Southern California, by Sam Ribikoff, March 20th, 2023. And this is just excerpts. It's not the entire article. Quote, before the annual Antonio Garra Day celebration on Saturday, about a dozen people met at the El Campo Santo in Old Town, San Diego, to visit the grave of Garra, an advocate and organizer for the rights and sovereignty of Native Americans in Southern and Baja California in the 19th century. A bundle of sage burned in a coffee mug while the Lord's Prayer was sung in the Cupeño Lounge, accompanied by a traditional gourd rattle, a fitting tribute to Gara and an affirmation of the continuance of the culture that his executioners tried to destroy. 
Gara was a leader and translator for the Cupeño people, a Native American group who lived in what's now the Warner Hot Springs area in the northeastern part of San Diego County in a tumultuous time in the early 1850s, right after California gained admission into the U.S. In need of revenue, the city of San Diego began collecting property taxes on Native American tribes in the area in 1850. Native communities agreed to pay the tax, but when the city came back in 1851, demanding even steeper taxes, the communities refused, and the city began confiscating animals and property. It was basically a land grab. Gara organized a coalition of Native nations spanning from San Diego to Baja California and out to the Colorado River, joining the Quechan people's fight against the U.S., known as the Yuma War. With the Quechan, Gara's forces stole a herd of sheep from Americans crossing the Colorado River. Five Americans were killed in the raid, which caused mass hysteria and paranoia when news reached San Diego. When Gata returned to the Warner Springs area, a contingent of his forces attacked a ranch. The next day, a volunteer militia of Americans from San Diego deployed to find Gara. Along the way, the militia burnt down the Cupeño village of Cupa. They found Gara weeks later and tried him for robbery, murder, and treason, even though he was not a U.S. citizen. Gara was convicted of the robbery and murder charges and was executed on January 11, 1852, by a firing squad composed of a contingent of the militia that had destroyed Koopa and captured him. Gara's last words, while forced to kneel in front of his open grave, were reported to be, quote, Gentlemen, I ask your pardon for all my offenses and expect yours in return. End quote. I also thought that this passage was really touching. It's just very poetic, and this is from the Hidden San Diego website in an article about Antonio Gara by David Johnson, and he writes, quote, On the afternoon of January 19, 1852, Cupeño tribal chief Antonio Gara was marched with his hands bound to a newly dug grave in the local San Diego Catholic Cemetery. He was accompanied by a Catholic priest who, as they walked, invited him to pray for his soul. Gara repeatedly declined, and observers noted that Gara appeared to know more Latin than the priest. Kneeling in front of his own freshly dug grave, Gara was repeatedly urged by his captors to offer some last words of remorse for his deeds. In answer, Gara finally said, quote, Gentlemen, I ask your pardon for all my offenses and accept yours in return. Seconds later, he was executed, end quote. So I was going through the photographs that I, I took looking for pictures of this one and I couldn't find anything. And I just thought, how did I miss such a big, important person's grave? And it's interesting because initially I thought it was because we were there on Halloween. So all of the Dia de los Muertos decorations were up and there were these really big really, really big like murals that were propped up against the information boards and things like that. So I thought, oh, I just probably, you know, missed them. Then I watched another really interesting YouTube video. It's a daylight tour of the cemetery and they go when it's quiet, which is wonderful. It's posted by Sidetrack Adventures are the ones who posted it. It's El Camposanto, 
really interesting information. I'll link to it. But I realized when I was watching that, no, that's not where the grave is. It's in a different part. And then watching that video, I realized that that's where, at one point in the night, that's where Paul was. And he said, oh, you should come over and take a look over here. And I so vividly remember that moment, but I don't know why I didn't go over. I was like, no, I'm good here. And I said to him just the other day, because we were getting ready to do this episode, and I said, do you think there was anything hinky there? Or do you think, I just didn't feel like walking over to you. And he said, yeah, you you probably just didn't want to come over, (laughs) which is, it's true, probably. I was probably tired. You know what I mean? I just, now I'm wondering if I was avoiding it because now that's like, ooh, the haunted corner and it's the one area I didn't go to. So coincidence, maybe. We didn't have a lot of time. We hadn't pre-planned anything. We just arrived there before dark and it closes at dark. So we were kind of in a rush and the vibe was a little weird. I'll share, uh, I'll share some video in the Facebook and on social, my social. But because you could hear nightclubs starting to, you know, get the party started, you'll see what I mean. It's just, you're in this really solemn kind of, (sighs) the vibe is like, I don't know. It just felt funny. It just had, it just had strange vibes. And I don't know if it's the disconnect from listening to the music, you know, and hearing like a bass, like club music in a cemetery that was throwing me or if it was Halloween, if I was just tired, it was the end of the night. I don't know. I want to go back. I want to stay at the very close by and rumored to be haunted Cosmopolitan Hotel, which looks amazing in Old Town. And then, yeah, stay for Dia de los Muertos and then do some exploring after that when things get quiet, right? All right, let's talk about some more of these interesting souls that were laid to rest in this graveyard. Next, we have Felicitas Pedrorena. She was buried April 12, 1880. Quote, I have given ecclesiastical burial to Felicitas, unmarried, aged 35 years, daughter of Miguel Pedrorena and Maria de Jesus, Indian. Quote, Juan Pujol, priest. It is indicated that Felicitas is the illegitimate daughter of Miguel Pedrorena. Miguel is also buried in El Campo Santo. End quote. Well, all right, but doesn't that just suck? Like, the only thing that we know about you is that you were illegitimate? Our next grave is a very well-known one. I'm talking, of course, about James, a.k.a. Yankee Jim Robinson. Kind of a weird name for a French-Canadian, like just this giant, I think he was like blonde or strawberry blonde guy. But he found himself in trouble in the summer of 1852 because he and a couple of friends had stolen a boat. This boat belonged to two men in town who did find it washed ashore a few miles away less than a week after the theft. The three men were arrested on charges of grand larceny, technically with horse theft because it seems that boat theft wasn't yet like a thing we could charge people with. And they thought that was close enough, right? So on the 18th of August, Yankee Jim was found guilty of grand larceny. And it's worth noting, I think, that the two men from whom he had stolen the boat, they were on the jury. Jim wasn't even mad about it. I'm mad about it, but he really wasn't. 
Even when the judge told him he would be hung by the neck until dead, he didn't really think it was going to happen because in his mind, he really hadn't done any permanent damage. So even though there was a new entourage of Catholic priests looking to save his soul, he just, he didn't think that he'd be hung. He really, really didn't because the boat had been recovered, kind of undamaged. And I agree with him, actually. I think that's a reasonable assumption. I would say jail time, yeah, that's expected, but not the gallows. That's, that's too harsh. Jim thought the same, but he thought wrong. On the 18th of September, Jim was taken from a small, carefully guarded adobe jail, and he was taken to the site of the gallows in Old Town. The gallows were two large beams that were planted in the ground, with a bar running between the top of them from which hung a noose. The wagon Jim was riding in was stopped beneath the noose, which was then tightened around Jim's neck. The priests made quick work of baptizing him, and then they let him say his piece. When Jim had a chance for last words, he told the crowd that he was a good man who had given a lot of his money to help the poor. He kept right on pleading his case until 3 p.m. when the cart was ordered to move again, and while Jim tried his best to stay on the moving cart, eventually he wasn't able to, and he fell. But he didn't fall far enough. We've already discussed at length the different ways a person dies from hanging, whether it be a slow strangle or a quick, relatively painless death. We discussed it at length during the Rebecca Zahow and Max Shacknai episodes. Irish physician Dr. Samuel Houghton had published his careful findings on how best to ensure a quick, humane death in 1866. But this was 1852, 14 years before that study would be published, and absolutely no good to Yankee Jim. Things were not well organized, and... He unfortunately slowly strangled to death in front of a crowd of onlookers. Among them, one Mr. James Whaley, the owner of the shop known as... This is clever. Johanna, are you ready? Tienda California. Yeah, that's right. California shop. Anyway, Yankee Jim, he is executed, and after he dies... His body is cut down, and his legs were snapped in two in order to better fit his tall frame into a standard casket. And then he was buried just a few minutes walk away in El Campo Santo. And can I just say that that fact makes my toes curl in the bad way? Like, they snapped his legs in half. Oh, no. Okay. The two men who had stolen the boat with him, they were tried, and they were each sentenced to one year in prison. This really does, I feel, have all the makings of an angry spirit, don't you think? Just, this feels like maybe a righteous haunting. And if you look into this crime, it's also very vague what kind of boat it was. Most accounts say it's a rowboat, but I've also seen several reports that say it was the only boat in town, which at first I was like, oh, maybe that's why they hung him, because, you know, he didn't steal a boat, he stole the boat, you know, but I don't think that's right either. And then I also saw in more than one uh, account that he had stolen a schooner, like three men, which maybe, but regardless, they got it back. 
I don't know. More grave markers. Again, these have been placed, I think they're all placed by the Friends of El Campo Santo. Uh, That's who I assume I'm quoting with all of these grave markers. And they're fabulous. So let's look at the next one. We have, quote, uh, Luis Gonzaga Serrano, infant son of Don Luis Serrano and Serafina Stewart, buried in El Campo Santo on March 13, 1873. Little Louis was one of 13 children. His father, Don Louis, was a former bullfighter and stagecoach driver. His mother, Serafina, was the daughter of Jack and Rosa Stewart, whose adobe home is still standing on the south side of Old Town State Park. End quote. So, Rosa was the daughter of José Manuel Machado, a retired soldier from the Presidio, who built the Casa de Machado y Stewart around 1835. Dr. Victor A. Walsh, historian for California State Parks, wrote this for OldTownSanDiego.org. Quote, Jose Manuel Machado, a retired soldier from the Presidio, built the Casa de Machado y Stewart around 1835. Made of sun-dried adobe bricks, the home originally had two rooms, a bedroom and living room. Like most adobes of the time, it was framed with ridge poles, which were fastened around overhead rafters and beams with strips of rawhide. The roof, most likely, was originally covered with tool thatch, called carrizo, and then packed with dry mud. The youngest daughter, Rosa, and her husband, Jack Stewart, a sailor and carpenter from Maine, moved into the house after their marriage in 1845. It was their only home. During their long residence, they made continual improvements, including adding rooms, lime washing the adobe walls, and building a barrel clay tile roof, wood paned windows, and rear piazza or columned porch for outdoor gatherings. End quote. That's nice. There are a couple of actual marble carved stones, and one of them is that of Jose G. Estudio, who died March 15, 1876, age 25 days. Jose was the infant son of Jose Guadalupe Estudio and Adelaide Mulholland. He was the grandson of Jose Antonio Estudio, one of San Diego's most prominent citizens. The flyer goes on to list some of his father and grandfather's accomplishments. And then it says that the child's grandfather, Jose Antonio Estudio, is buried nearby, and his great-grandfather is buried under the chapel floor of San Diego's Presidio. End quote. We have photos of all of these, or many of these, from my visit. Another one that I took a picture of was another super simple one, but this one just said, quote, in memory of John A. Dill, a mariner of Boston, Massachusetts, died in November 8th, 1878, I think that's what it said, age 26 years, two months. And he is not the only New Englander there. The other really beautiful carved marble stone is the one that's around, like, in the inside, rather, of that one really pretty wrought iron fence. It stands out in the photos, and within there's just this really beautiful carved marble stone it's been laid flat because it's been broken into pieces over time, and this is what it says. So, um, on the sign next to it, it says, quote, In memory of Rosa Serrano de Cassidy, 
wife of Andrew Cassidy, died February 10, 1869, aged 21 years. Rosa Serrano de Cassidy was the first wife of Andrew Cassidy. He was a native of County Cavan, Ireland, and he helped to establish and operate the U.S. tidal gauge in what is now Point Loma. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Hers is one of the few remaining headstones in the cemetery, like that are an actual marble carved headstone. The original wooden ones would have all rotted away by now. The headstone is cracked because of an earlier restoration, and then it was put flat on the ground in order to preserve it. There is a discrepancy in the dates of her death. She's listed as dying on February 10th, 1869, and being buried on 11th of February, according to the Book of the Dead, but her headstone, which we can actually see, lists her date of death as September 10th, 1869, and there's no real explanation for this discrepancy that they can find. Carved on her grave, quote, Una y biente veces, vi de flores sembrar el campo. Era joven, fui llamada a Dios, no llores por mí. End quote. And um, that translates to, quote, One in twenty times I saw the fields planted in flowers. I was young. I was called to God. Do not cry for me. End quote. As time moved on, burials dwindled in this cemetery and then stopped altogether, but life in Old Town San Diego did not. In 1894, a road for a horse-drawn streetcar was built through the cemetery, and over time this road became known as San Diego Avenue. In 1933, the San Diego Historical Society got together because, yikes, and they built a brick wall around the cemetery trying to make more of a clear division between the cemetery and the sidewalk. And this is when the neighbors started being bothered, which did not improve when the roads around the cemetery were fully paved in 1942. And if you're wondering, wait, they put all these roads down, they paved things, they built sidewalks, they built homes and businesses, they moved all those graves before they paved them, right? They did not. There are graves under all of those areas and at least one bar and many, many parking spaces. And all of a sudden, people who lived on former cemetery land for generations were suddenly having problems like their lights were flickering, other electronic interference, cars parked over graves wouldn't start, and if you drove over a certain area in the road where there might be a grave, your car will stall. Maybe it'll start up right away. Maybe you need to have it towed. Who can say? Freezing, bone-chilling cold spots are felt around the area of the cemetery, and that is a very expensive and desirable climate to live in for the precise reason that it is never, never bone-chillingly cold. Native American or Mexican men are also often seen in the area and thought to be real until they suddenly vanish. Much more alarming is reports of a tall, dark, ominous shadow who appears often, and many believe this is the angry and restless spirit of Yankee Jim. Often, visitors will see someone that looks just like an employee in a really good period costume, who then vanishes in an actual blink as you get closer to them. 
Is it a woman in white? Is it Yayarona? Who could she be? There's also a Native American in older style dress who seems absolutely fine. Actually, zero creep factor at all, really, until you notice that he is floating. That's never good. In 1993, equipment was brought in that uses ground-penetrating radar to look underneath the road and sidewalk and around the cemetery. And what did they find? At least 20 graves under San Diego Avenue and 13 mostly children's graves on Linwood Street. The neighborhood finally had enough of the paranormal activity, so in 1996 they pooled their money to have a Catholic priest come and exercise the cemetery. I have a lot of questions about that last sentence too, but apparently it worked and the activity calmed down. But it didn't stop. Today, when you enter the cemetery, there are plaques around each street gate. So the one says, remembering the more than 20 men, women, and children who lie buried beneath San Diego Ave, only Assemblyman Edward L. Green was exhumed and placed within the new boundary of El Campo Santo Cemetery. These graves were discovered with the use of ground-penetrating radar in 1993. Rest in peace. And then the other one says, Remembering the more than 13 people, mostly children, who lie buried beneath Linwood Street, these graves were discovered, blah blah blah, ground-penetrating radar, same thing, rest in peace. And then at the bottom, they both say this plaque was placed by the Historical Shrine Foundation with funds from the San Diego Community Development Block Grant in 1994. And then beneath each one is an individual drawing of the gate and the street and the location of the gate and where the graves are located in the street. So that's fun. There's also these little metal markers that you'll see in the street, in the sidewalk, and around as you walk around El Campo Santo. They almost look like a bottle cap that somebody, like, stomped flat on the pavement, and it just says grave. I really want to go back when I have more time to feel all the feels. That is my, maybe I'll be too brief, is it too brief, coverage of El Campo Santo Cemetery, which I really, really cannot wait to return to. Johanna, we're going to have the best time. All right. Oh, before I end, I wanted to let you know that we have had quite a few people messaging us about the confession of Joran van der Sloop in the murder of Natalie Holloway, and we are on it. We are on it, and there will be an update episode on that coming out after our annual Halloween listener special episode. It's funny, we don't really do that many new episodes, but I'm. it feels like this time last year, we had just discovered who Lady of the Dunes was, and a year later, we have finally affirmation and just confirmation for the Holloway family after all this time. So that's coming very soon. Then we're actually going to be covering the Whaley House as its own episode. As I said before, Paul and I went last year on Halloween, and it was fantastic. So if you're thinking about it, go. I cannot wait to tell you all about it. And, you know, my something good this week is going to be a quickie. It's going to be (laughs) 
Uh, local historical societies. I joke about them time to time, but a good historical society is a truly priceless resource in your community. So thank you for all the work you do. Speaking of things we can't wait to tell you about, this is your reminder for our murder tier patrons that our voice chat uh, on Discord is coming up on Monday, October 23rd. So this Monday... Also, for all of our murder and mystery level patrons, we have the first of what we're hoping is going to be a series of conversations with guests who kept going or had unique experiences that they're comfortable sharing with us. So in our first piece, we speak with Johanna's friend Ingrid about her being held at gunpoint while her husband was kidnapped and held for ransom. It is absolutely remarkable. We're calling this segment, Tell Me Everything, and I hope you'll go have a listen and let us know your thoughts. We have a short list of a variety of topics we find interesting, and we just hope you're going to enjoy enjoy these discussions as much as we have. Johanna has also gotten things organized over in Patreon, and it's now so much easier to find categories. So go visit our Patreon if you are a patron and let us know your thoughts, please. We are always trying to improve that. If you are not a patron but would like to support the show, please recommend us to a friend or on your Facebook page or talk about us in another related group or our favorite, leave us a positive review. And I think that's enough for one day. Our website is freshhellpodcast.com. Our email is freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your pets we said hi. And remember, if you're going through hell, keep going. Keep going.